Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. So I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to the inaugural Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. Newcastle Library's Heritage Collection contains more than 440,000 items in various formats from mayoral portraits and snowballs plate glass negatives to the original Menzies Declaration and the Creer and Berkeley Archive of Subdivision Maps. A wide range of Newcastle's stories are presented in the Library's Heritage Collection. Join us as we explore one piece from the Library's fascinating Rare Book Room. Welcome to our inaugural Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. I am Kerry Shaw and today I am joined by Dr. Anne Llewellyn and Vera Deacon as we discuss a natural history work which was published in 1864 called Australian Lepidoptera and Their Transformations. This work was written by Alexander Scott and contains hand-coloured illustrations which were drawn by his two daughters Helena and Harriet Scott. The book was researched and drawn while the family lived on Ash Island. Here they observed and captured the likeness of the insects, moths and butterflies of the island. Let's learn a little bit more about the family and how they came to be on Ash Island. The Scots um, are an interesting family. They came from England and were quite affluent when they arrived. Um, there were three brothers who, who set up in the Hunter Valley, Helenus and uh, Robert, and of course Alexander Walker, who was pretty well known as Walker, I think. Walker himself was uh, a graduate of an MA from Cambridge, and he was, had a good grounding in taxonomy and entomology and a broad interest in natural history. So he, um, he was always interested in the environment. He also had a good art background. He was a friend of Edward Lancey, the, the artist, and it's believed that he may have had lessons from him at some stage. So when he uh, came to Australia, the, well, when the Scots came to Australia, they all had pretty um, incredible land grants allocated to them. And of course, it was during the times of convict allocation. So they made quite a lot of interesting decisions about how they would pursue their, their careers. And uh, two of the brothers, well, I think the three brothers actually were partners on their property up at Glendon in the Upper Hunter. Helenus and Robert tended to stay there, but Alexander Walker tended to, uh, wanted to spread his wings, I think, and he ended up getting land grants around the Hunter Valley. So he had the land at Ash Island for some time before the family moved there permanently. He also had land around um, the Cahiba area, Burwood. He had land over at Stockton. And he appeared to have many industry interests, which I think probably made him a little uh, vulnerable to financial difficulty. He was known to be not too financially savvy. So I think that in the end... uh, probably gave them a bit of a leg into the financial uh, hardships that overcame them in the end. The Scots generally were um, not necessarily kind to the local Aboriginal community and they were certainly known to be quite difficult 
and uh, hard taskmasters to their convicts. I think in 1840 there was a recession or a, a depression really and uh, everybody I think in the colony felt quite uh, affected by that. Unfortunately for Alexander Walker, it meant that he lost a lot of his money. And even though he had all these businesses, which included tobacco farming at Maitland, he had all sorts of industry, a salt industry, a material or fabric industry over at Stockton. He also had tried to coerce Ludwig Leichhardt to set up for him a wine industry at, at his property down at Bearwood. Unfortunately, Ludwig had bigger things to fry and left. Perhaps he'd have been better sticking around the, the Burwood area and not um, taking off into the centre of Australia to be lost. But the girls came to live with their father and, and mother on Ash Island and uh, they set up a rather interesting life there. And I think that's what we're sort of really looking at today is the artwork that they produced during those years on Ash Island. We owe to them, those young women, the recording of the flora that were on the islands and that would have been similar flora on Dempsey Island and Mosquito Island. I liken what I've read, a lot of it, the bush would have been like what you see when you drive up from here on the way to Nelson's Bay and you look both sides, you pass through a section there where there's a lot of dense bush. That would have been similar to what was on the island. We used to go by Ash Island. We got on our, Dad got on our feet, he got a little launch. This house fell vacant on Mosquito Island and Mother said we'll take it to get out of the Mayfield West unemployed camp. And we loved the island. (laughs) Oh, it was wonderful. We were poor, but we didn't know it. We were rich in so many things. I've had city women tell me, you know, oh, you were lucky, Vera. I said, well, I I, I realised we didn't have to run on hard pavements. We'd run across the paddocks and the fields. And school holidays, my brother and I would cook like mad from the Common Sense Cookery Book. (laughs) And then we'd have a big picnic up the top of the island. I used to help Dad with his nets. And uh, I found fishing by line very boring. (laughs) My father was a marvellous guy. When we left the Dole Camp at Mayfield West in 1939, uh, I remember it well because it was school holidays, uh, the first thing he did while uh, Mother and he were flying elbow grease to the house, fishermen had been living in it and left it in a bit anyway. We got wallpaper and all that and painted and and they got settled and then Dad dug up this big garden and I used to follow him around. And one day he said to me, would you like to grow a hill of beans, kid? And I said, yes, I would. So he had these little brown beans, the beans you, you plant to get green beans, and he, he made this hill and then he, he said, now put those in and cover them over and water them and see what happens. Well, after a while, suddenly this... I've never got over it. It shot up. It's really amazing, you know. Well, it, it, it is amazing to see a big seed like that uh, and become aware of uh, what nature can do from a tiny seed. There was plenty of seagulls and there was plenty of uh, magpies and kookaburras and, um, oh, of course, the little willy wagtails. The little willy wagtails used to swoop on our black cat tar pot trying to pick his fur out. <laughs> we got so bad we had to escort him when he went out into the garden to 
do his daily hygiene. You know, cats are very clean and, and they defecate and <laughs> they immediately cover it over and all that sort of thing. Very clean animals. I lost my dog Flossie by a shark right on the edge of the river. We were uh, a big um, long sleeper came down and we nailed a fruit box of carton to it and with sort of sticks, pretend it was a canoe. It wasn't a, and I got, I being the eldest, I got in the box and when I came to get out, I had to struggle to get out. Anyway, I got out, got into the water and went for the shore. And as I did, my dog, who was uh, in the water with me, I heard her yelp just as I got out into the water and the shark took her. It was awful. My brother was watching her. Oh, it's terrible. You just she, she yelped and you see this blood and then she disappears. Norman and I were really upset over that. Ash Island offered a unique opportunity for the Scott sisters. It gave them the freedom away from society and the outside world to explore and pursue their scientific work. This was an opportunity which would not have been afforded to them otherwise due to their gender even though the family were well connected in scientific circles. Helena and Harriet used microscopes to capture the colour, texture and tiny body details of the Lepidoptera while they were alive. This set their artworks apart from others of the time who usually worked with specimens that were long since dead and pinned to boards, meaning that they had lost some of their colour and vibrancy. The Scott sisters, when they were working on Ash Island, were, were pretty privileged. I mean, we talk about them being um, disadvantaged, being women in their day, but because of their father's connections with the scientists of the day and the people at the Australian Museum, they had access to Incredibles collections and they contributed to those collections as well. But their life would have been interesting in that because they were able to access the natural world on the island, they were able to see butterflies and plants and animals and the landscape on a day-to-day basis. So they would see the butterflies on particular plants and then they would probably collect from those plants and bring those specimens, the, the eggs of the butterfly, into the house or into a protected space where they could observe and draw and, and watch and write about and record all of the features of those uh, those butterflies over time. So their work is, is quite fascinating in that it actually records the many aspects of the butterfly's life cycle, which is only obtained through close observation and collection of specimens in the field. The island allowed them to do that. It was fairly isolated. They had the opportunity to to be out there every day looking around. Although I noticed that Harriet had written in one of her letters that she was a bit peeved that she had to do the womanly thing around the house. So clearly housework wasn't one of her fortes. But she managed to get her artwork done. Um, She would have liked to have spent more time on the artwork, it would appear. But um, like us all, we all have to do the dishes and those other things that make life possible. (laughs) Anyway, the girls were very meticulous in their detail. And if you um, get the opportunity at the Australian Museum at any time, you can actually see the notebooks that they wrote in. And it would appear that their half-sister, Frances, was involved in the writing of the, of the journals as well because when you read them, they've, they've actually got their signatures or at least initials against particular entries in the book. So their work is, is a 
compendium of a range of things from close observation, which is recorded in, in journals, of sketches, some of which aren't butterflies, but they're of the plants of the place and the animals that, that live there. They also then would experiment with their watercolours. They were obviously learning how to produce the colours that they needed to replicate the beautiful colours that we see in the finished artwork today. And uh, they would draft the, the final artwork. They would make sure that that, that that would be uh, probably referred to one of the scientists at the museum or through their father to make sure that the the artwork actually told the story that they needed to tell before they would then go on to a finished artwork that we can see today. So it was a fairly meticulous process that they followed. And because they had these contacts with the museum and the experts of their day, they often wrote letters and exchanged correspondence between those people. So in many ways, they were privileged in some ways because they had access to all of this information. They were actually made honorary members of the Australian Entomological Society, which was for a woman in, in their time was probably almost unique. So I think, you know, what sets them apart with their artwork today is the outstanding accuracy that they're famous for. And it makes that work important to researchers today because the colours are accurate, the information's accurate. It shows a point in time in a particular location in the Hunter Valley. And that work is now being used also by ecologists to rehabilitate parts of the Lower Hunter. The plants and animals that they've captured in their artwork are now being used to restore plant species on Ash Island to try and rehabilitate an island that was largely industrialised over the years. So uh, what their work has done is not only look to the past, it's also now being used to preserve the future. My friend Malcolm Bailey, he heard on the wireless that there was a bus tour of Ash Island. So he, he rang me up and he said, you ought to ring up and go on the tour. So I did. I rang up and I went and I went and that's how I got onto Ash Island. Okay. They had what they called the Kooragang Wetlands Rehabilitation Project, led by a, a beautiful woman called Peggy Savoboda. We uh, regenerated the bush. Uh, the Scott sisters, the daughters of Alexander Walker Scott, they made a list of the flora on Ash Island yes. and we, they used that list to replace the trees that we've planted on Ash Island, what's left. Ash Island was the only island that was not dumped on by the steelworks. I think, you know, their work represents one of the most comprehensive 19th century natural science and natural art archives in the country. Their work was recently added to Australia's UNESCO Memory of the World program. This was established back in the 1920s in an effort to safeguard the documentary heritage of humanity. And I guess that there was a, a real concern that a lot of this history would be lost through a collective amnesia or from neglect and the ravages of time and climate conditions. And uh, so to have their work accepted in this way and recorded for posterity is pretty amazing for a pair of young women who worked on an island in the middle of the Hunter River all those years ago. The book was completed in 1851 and constantly revised until funds were available for its publication in 1862. 20 of the 100 paintings Helena and Harriet completed for the book were used in it. 500 copies were published, each one hand-coloured, making them expensive to purchase. A second volume was published in 1890. 
Helena left Ash Island in 1864 upon marrying Edward Ford and accompanied him on his exploration of the Darling River the following year. Her drawings from this expedition feature in William Wools's book Contribution to the Flora of Australia, which was published in 1867. The rest of the family left Ash Island in 1866 after Alexander Scott was declared bankrupt when his many business ventures failed. I think that Alexander Walker Scott um, was so heavily committed in so many areas that when the depression of the 1840s hit the country, he appeared to be not able to sustain all his businesses. He seemed to have fingers in many pies, which sort of suggested that he maybe not have been paying attention to um, the the financial uh, robustness of any of his businesses. He was an entrepreneur and he was an industrialist, a politician and a magistrate. He had businesses and, and locations, land and property all over the place. But even he, with all of those resources, couldn't make a go of it. And, and ultimately, uh, he had to sell the property on Ash Island and sell up all his business interests and, and go back to Sydney to live. So the girls were taken back into what was for them probably not the most ideal situation. They'd come from the peace and tranquility of Ash Island where often quite learned people would come and visit and and they would mix with people like Ludwig Leichhardt and John and Elizabeth Gould visited them on the island. And uh, so this idyllic world that they'd inhabited for some 20 years was no longer at their disposal and life for them became a lot more difficult. They had to then set about earning a living. They didn't have the resources of their father to fall back on. They had to now make a living as paid illustrators, which for them would have been hard in those difficult times. It would have been rather a come down for the girls to have uh, suddenly had to uh, make a living from their own resources. And, and as it was tough times, I mean, the economy was poor. How many scientific illustrations they could do would be limited. I imagine the, the museum would have suffered from a lack of resources, which is you know pretty common these days, isn't it? So it was still happening all those years ago. Yeah, the Scott sisters had to become a bit more uh, diverse in their in their the things that they did to earn a living. And like many of us as illustrators, we often uh, have to sort of turn to the uh, digital age or to the different media advertising and dare say it design to uh, to actually make a living. So they would have done that, and and I understand that they actually were uh, involved in developing the first Australian Christmas cards. At a time in the colony, very little artwork was of note was actually done in Australia. Most of the work for children and in other books were, were done overseas. And even the book that you're seeing here, the coloured plates were actually coloured in England. They weren't coloured in Australia. The girls sent over their original artwork so that people knew what colours they were to paint the butterflies and the and the various aspects of the plants. But um, yeah, it was a lot of this work was done overseas. It wasn't done in Australia. So they really battled having an Australian identity within their own country. Everything sort of seemed to be centred around England and uh, that was that would have made their lives a lot more difficult too. You know, for a while... I bought their cards, their Christmas card. Yeah, I had them. I sent them out at Christmas at the time I was coming here. And then when the next 
a couple of years passed and then I wrote away to order more and they said, we're sorry, we've discontinued production. of. I haven't even got one. It's really sad. But they were beautiful, you know, native flowers and all that sort of thing. Beautiful cards to send out at Christmas or at any time. They were very clever girls. And he he was, uh, Alexander Walker Scott was pretty progressive. I mean, the girls were saying, I'm so proud because Father lets me sign my name. (laughs) Well, that was the thing. The woman did the painting, but the man's name went on it. He was ahead of his time. After the death of her husband, only a year after marriage, Helena joined Harriet and the family in Sydney where both sisters went on to draw for many scientific works as a means of financial support. Working for a living disadvantaged Helena and Harriet socially as it was not seen proper for ladies, especially not in the field of science at the time. Harriet confided in a letter to Edward Ramsey, a director of the Australian Museum and a close family friend, that she had a great desire to distinguish herself in some way or other and if she were only a man she might do it but as she is a woman she can't try clearly i ought to have been harry scott instead of hattie scott this note to a dear family friend reveals her frustration over the confines of her gender helena did not marry again and supported herself throughout her life by selling her paintings and illustrations Harriet married Dr. Cosby Morgan in 1882, becoming stepmother to his four daughters. Harriet particularly seemed to be quite concerned that she couldn't go to university. She really wanted to do that, but because of the times that she lived, women weren't, didn't have that privilege. So for her, she never really felt that she had made the mark in the world that she wanted to make. Helena was a little bit more robust. She appears to have received her father's passion for discovery. And when she married Edward Ford and they went off to the Darling River on a big adventure where she illustrated a lot of that trip, I think she was able to fulfil her role in, in society a little more than perhaps Harriet. Unfortunately, Helen's husband died on that trip And uh, so that set her pathway to her future in a very different direction as well. The two sisters, um, when they went back to Sydney and their father died and their mother had died just before they left the island, I think for them life must have changed quite a lot. They would have found it much more difficult. Their connection to the people of the day were probably a little less available to them. And life would have been tough. They lived in various accommodations. Neither women had children. Helena married again and and had four stepdaughters, which could have been rather challenging. We, from, from some of the historical documents I've read, it suggests that she didn't, or they didn't get on terribly well with her. So I think neither girl really reached the full potential that they would have liked. They were both ambitious. They came from an ambitious family. And I think, you know, for them to have had to settle to a fairly humdrum existence, trying to make a living from limited resources and having to sell their work and take commissions to undertake their artwork would have been really soul-destroying. Up until then on Ash Island, they were able to do whatever they needed to do within the art fraternity. Now they were having to do what they needed to do to survive and that would have been a pretty difficult thing for them to do. I think as females in a, in a largely male-dominated world, they achieved more than most women. And sadly, you know, their work was actually 
lost and, and the memory of that work was lost. Fortunately, in Newcastle, we still have the Scott name in Scott Street. But I don't think too many people in the area would realise what that means and who Scott was. Fortunately for us, Nancy Gray started doing some research on the Scots some many years ago, and Marion Ord picked up on that work, and so the work of the Scott sisters was brought back to life. The artwork itself had been secreted in the Australian Museum for nearly 100 years before it was rediscovered, and it's through that discovery and the reproduction of the artwork in Marion Ord's books that we began to know a lot more about the Scots, about the physical artefacts left behind by the Scots, not the property or the the houses that they left behind, but the beautiful artwork that tells a story of what the place around the Hunter Valley was like all those years ago. It's a great resource for future researchers and it's also an important part of our understanding of the world that we live in. Harriet and Helena lived in Sydney until their deaths in the early 1900s, neither sister having had any children. Many of the ladies' illustrations are still used today and are considered to be some of the best ever produced due to the colour and detail captured. Australian Lepidoptera and their transformations by Alexander Scott is just one of the treasures held in the Newcastle Library's rare book collection. Thanks so much for listening to the inaugural Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. To access and browse Newcastle Library's collections, please visit our website at newcastle.nsw.gov.au slash library. To view our heritage collection, just Google Hunter Photo Bank. The online collection is constantly being added to as items are digitised and loaded, so be sure to visit often.